Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is episode number 15 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, May the 15th. First, I'll be talking to CTO of Fornetics and cybersecurity expert Chuck White over in Frederick, Maryland in the USA on Zoom bombing and how to protect your remote workforces teleconferences from outside hackers. And then I'll be talking to IFM Investors Chief Economist Alex Joyner about the dire economic outlook. But now let's talk to Chuck White. Uh, Chuck, um, at the moment, everyone is on Zoom and uh, there's a whole lot of video hijacking attempts now occurring frequently and Zoom bombing during teleconferences on uh, platforms. And uh, Zoom bombing uh, is, uh, is quite a newish trend. Uh, what's your view about it? Well, when you look at it, it's funny, right? Because you look at these things, you look at something like Zoom bombing and, and, and the first thing you want to say is this is why you, you, people can't have nice things. And there's a bit of that that story here. In one case, people took something. Let's look at this in two different directions. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna dissect it here a little bit. One is what Zoom is. Zoom is a is a is a app that's online. You know, it competes against you know WebEx or it competes against things like GoToMeeting or you know even now Microsoft Teams. You know, which is, you know, a nice way of saying Skype for business. The idea of looking at technologies like that is this enterprise tech being used for personal consumer, you know, implementation. 
And so that's one area where people who aren't used to running, you know, web conferences are you know, just like I need to say good morning to you because you're in, you know, you're in Melbourne, uh, you know, or, or around Melbourne. You know, it's the same thing that, 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 you know, you, you know how to, I know how to host a web conference. Now you have lots of people coming online, not used to operating this way. And, you know, I think some of it is, is a lack of experience. And, you know, just, it's almost the equivalent of how people might, you used to keep your, you used to keep your front door unlocked. So if you take that from a Zoom bombing perspective, there are droves of people coming online using Zoom to collaborate and, you know, not taking appropriate steps to lock the door. And is that, is that Zoom's fault? I don't, I wouldn't say it's necessary. There are areas where they've, they have taken to their credit, they've taken some positive steps. But I think a lot of it, you know, i.e. making meetings private by default, but a lot of it is a user community who would not think that that would be a, that a tool like Zoom would be abused this way. Does that make sense? Yes. So what steps should people take to ensure that the door is locked? Great question. You can, you can first and foremost, make meetings private. One of the issues, there was an entire currency of people putting on something onto Facebook, and Facebook isn't exactly the most private platform in the universe. Uh, and, you know, hey, people were finding these links, and they were just hop inviting themselves to the party. Same thing is, you know, putting or putting a, a link for a Zoom site onto, uh, like, a, a web-facing you know, uh, a website, you know, hoping that security by obscurity would protect you. Well, unfortunately, security by obscurity is dead. So someone's, if, it, if it's made, if it's, if it's anywhere that's internet facing and is not being particularly private or protected, it will be discovered. And then as we found here, it's taken advantage of. So step one, keep meetings private. Two, in the case of Zoom, don't as much as it's, 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 it's easy to say, hey, use my personal room, refrain from doing that. Schedule a meeting. That way the meeting has a beginning, and when you end the meeting, it has an end. It's not like a per, it's not like an ongoing room thing where people go in and out because that into itself also lends, you know, it, it can be abused. Uh, three, going back on that, that piece of, you know, the, the fact of me keeping the meeting private. That is now a default setting. In Zoom, so that means, hey, make it private. Uh, make sure that you are taking advantage of that fact that it's private, and so that you then use an out-of-band delivery mechanism. You know, this outdated thing called email. Not that outdated, but point being, it's from a lot of people's perspective, sending it through a not through like a, a social media site or Twitter or something like. Don't use that. Use email. You think it's very specific, pointed. To a person, and this is very important when you think about like online learning where people are coming together. And so if you come, if you start combining these things where you're not using the meeting, you're not, you're using, you're not using your personal room, you're using a, a, a meeting that you specifically have a time, you are making it private where each person has to be invited to the meeting and that meeting has a password. Now, now you're, 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 you're raising the risk, you know, that the risk level is being upped by several, several, you're making it much more difficult. You're taking rungs away uh, from the, the security ladder for the attacker. Now, this is all things that you can do to be, these are preventative measures. 
I would suggest there's another category of what happens when you're in the meeting and you are, you know, when you do, what, are, what, what can you do once you're in a meeting? Now, there's some procedural things that you can do considering what would happen once somebody, let's say something happens for whatever reason, the Zoom, you know, you, you, you inadvertently, it's, it's one of the last times you're doing a public, you know, public link for a meeting. And you got you now have a scenario where there's a Zoom bomber in the meeting, or maybe someone's email has been exploited or something. You know what can you do in that model? So now we've gone from we've gone from a preventative step to okay now that when the risk has actualized, what do you do about it? Now one first thing is you know if you can make sure that you limit who can actually do you know screen sharing or share video. Limit that to what the meeting actually requires. So maybe it's just a host that needs to share. Keep it just to be the host. Two, eliminate the need for uh, turn off private chat. That's where someone, you know, potentially, if you have a situation, like let's say you're doing it like a classroom exercise or you're putting a group together for a meeting, that's where a Zoom bomber might go to somebody and send them a link for something that, you know, might look legitimate, but hey, guess what? It's not legitimate. You know, on the it could be something offensive or even worse, could be effectively a, you know, a spear phishing attack. So they've actually got, they, they've targeted you to go to this link. And it's actually, it's when you click on that link, it's going to load malware. And those are the guys you really have to be worried about. Uh, particularly if you think about, they might be preying on children in schools to get to the parents and everything else. Three, if you can have it, if you can have someone who's effectively, if you consider things like Zoom are, it's like a public forum. Yes, it's on, you know, these meetings are like, it's like coming to a meeting room. And if, you know, depending on you, it might be a good idea to have someone to be a monitor or a chaperone whose entire job is not to be the person running the meeting, but the person who's watching the meeting happen. And you might see this in larger, you, you, we see this for a lot of executives who wouldn't know how to set up one of these tech, set up a meeting. They have some, they have an assistant set up the meeting, watch the meeting and, you know, control the meeting. That's another useful tactic in this case as well, because now you have someone who's not participating. They're not in the flow, but they're listening and they can see something faster than the person presenting can. And you know, they can remove the person from a meeting. And then fourth on the end from the, the, the mitigation component. And this is, this is, this is like if all else fails, shut down the meeting. An attacker can attack something that's not there. And that's and that that's a that's a lesson in cyber defense. The simplest way to defeat a cyber attack is to unplug you know unplug the the, the asset that's being attacked. Or in the case of something like Zoom or any other any sort of collaborative online collaboration tool, you shut down the session. You remove the threat. That that that's 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 your last. But that that should be you know you don't want to do that all the time because then you're gonna that's disruptive as well. That's you you're you're doing a denial of service to yourself. So you look at this, these, these categories of things that are in the space of what I would do to be preventative measures to prevent the Zoom bombing from happening. And then the steps that can happen in case of as a session is live, what you can do to take steps to remove the threat. Does that make sense? Yes, but uh, I mean, all these great cyber defense and cyber hygiene methods you propose are very good, but uh, you do have an issue of employee mistakes. Uh, do, your remote, your, do your remote teams, and they are remote, understand 
the cyber risks and the policies. That's a great point. And that, 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 let's, let, let's look at that in that same, you know, where we're going to put the, 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 the leisure use of these technologies aside for a second. Let's look at this from a business perspective. Let's look at it from do people, and I think that's, that, that's, that, that is another area where you have a lot of the workforce who is not used to using this technology, is not trained to use this technology. And you have to, I think that's another, the, the, the education of saying, here's what you do to prevent something from happening. And here are the, here are the tactics you use to do things as things are happening. There are actually more sophisticated things you can do with Zoom in terms of, you know, whether or not you let someone go back in the room after you remove them. Uh, I, I, I was actually filtering a little bit of that out. So I'm thinking, you know, when it comes to someone, let's say, that doesn't work in this day in and day out, you want to teach them three to four things. And fair, you know, go in, you know, keep it private, have a chaperone, and, you know, kick people out. And if you lose control, kill the meeting. And that that's, if you do something that simple and you build it around that, that the idea being, you know, let's say from something I did in my, my I'm a former army officer. So I would say in the spirit of keeping it infantry proof, that's, those would be the four things that I would do to facilitate that. And that's the same thing we've told, you know, for my own team at Fornetics, we've said the exact same thing. So these are, if you're going to host a meeting, do these things. Do not, you know, and, and so that, 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 that cyber hygiene is critical because, you know, attackers ultimately, a lot of, you know, a lot of mistakes, attackers will take advantage of people making mistakes to your point, you know, that, 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 you know, Leon, I think that, that, that's a great way to look at it. And so if you can train and, you know, maintain that, 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 that sort of appropriate posture where it becomes second nature, you know, freedom through discipline to prevent these things from happening, you're going to, you're going to make it much more difficult for an attacker to take advantage of some of a populace that's effectively vulnerable. I mean, if you think about it, think about, let's go back 10 years. Uh, some of the issues we would see when people, when you really started the first, you know, when we first saw phishing attacks coming on, they took advantage of a vulnerable population and now they become more sophisticated, you know, in terms of now you've got the idea of spear phishing and everything else like that, where these phishing attacks become more sophisticated. But think about where they were, you know, 10 years ago. And because we start teaching good cyber hygiene or start the process, get people in the mindset that someone will use a falsified email to get you to provide information you should not provide, getting that, 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 you know, we made it more difficult. So the, the attacker had to up their game. They had to become more sophisticated. The only collaboration session that's truly immune to attacks is the one that never happens. That's a reality, but you can make it a lot more difficult. Well, Chuck, that is very, very informative, and I'm sure everyone will be listening with fascination to that and taking very close notes, and thank you very much for your time. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Leon. If there's anything else, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. And now let's talk to IFM Investors Chief Economist, Alex Joyner. Alex, uh, what's your view about the economic outlook? It's uh, very, very grim at the moment. Well, that's certainly true. Um, you know, I think there's been a, uh, a rush, I guess, of forecasters looking to try and uh, put a size to the, to the um, I guess, precipitous fall in real GDP around the world. You know, we've seen the IMF come out with their forecasts 
highlighting the uh, the deepest recession since the Great Depression. Um, and even the Reserve Bank in Australia have come out and, and tried to put a number to this. You know, I think I think we have because we haven't seen this type of episode before in which economies basically stop, you know, I think economists are having trouble ascribing a number to it. The Reserve Bank's tried its first guess, I guess, was uh, came from Phil Lowe, and he thinks the economy, or the Reserve Bank's economist, and he think the economy will contract uh, 10% in the first half of this year, uh, with most of that happening in the June quarter, and that obviously would be something that's been unprecedented, which is the, the word of the crisis. So far, uh, the unemployment rate heading up to 10%. We've already seen a little bit of evidence of that in some higher frequency data the ABS is bringing out. And uh, within that labour market, the number of uh, hours worked in the economy will shrink by 20%. So that dislocation coming from uh, people working a lot less hours but still being employed because of the government's JobKeeper allowance that they've, they've put through. So uh, that will in part cushion the blow and you know, Australia's been pretty proactive in, in the fiscal space there, you know, a bit over 10% of GDP to try and cushion the blow of this unprecedented recession. You know, that stands us in, in pretty good stead when you compare us to uh, fiscal packages from around the world. Well, the issue is that uh, the economic pain is only just beginning and uh, we're going to see entire industries either wiped out or hastily transformed. But the reality is economists are peering into the great unknown, trying to understand a world that doesn't fit any economic models because they don't know how to model for economic conditions that have never existed before in anyone's lifetime. Well, that's right. Um, you know, economists and econometricians, uh, such as myself, we don't have a, a model for this. We don't have a, a dummy variable for this. I sort of commented when, when we first started to see some of the survey data, the PMI data come out uh, in Europe and the US, uh, and, it, and it falls off a cliff to levels that we've never even seen before. Yeah, so sort of breaking all the charts, as it were. You know, we haven't seen this type of episode before, so it's very difficult to model it. You know, we're all sort of running around trying to ascribe uh, traditional shapes to the to, re to the recession as well. You know, you hear V shapes and U shapes and L shapes. Again, very very difficult. Uh, to ascribe, uh, you know, a recovery path to a type of recession that we haven't seen before. You know, the way I've been thinking about it is, you know, the recovery will happen in, in four stages and not be really any shape that we can identify. The first being, you know, economies stop and fall off a cliff. So basically real GDP goes down, you know, between 10 or 20%, depending on what economy you're in. And that happens almost immediately because of the public health uh, restrictions. We then get a period that is defined by the public health crisis. So a period of hibernation, as the government likes to put it. You know, that's lasted a couple of months already. It will probably last uh, a couple more uh, before we see any meaningful restrictions lifted. Um, so there's a flat spot at the bottom of this recession. And then you know, we get something like a snapback. That's what the, the Prime Minister's calling it. I don't think it'll be very much of a snapback, but, you know, once we see some of the restrictions lifted, you know, people going back to work and allowed back in the shops and restaurants and bars, you know, we'll get, we'll get a bit of a lift. But as you say, I think the economy will be scarred and the way people uh, actually operate in the economy uh, will be different going forward. So, you know, when we see that that sort of snapback, it's not going to be just to how things were. 
uh, it will be a, a sharp pickup in growth, but it certainly won't get us back to where the economy was uh, in late 2019. I think that process will take sort of 12 to 18 months after we uh, lift these public health restrictions and, and the economy will, will be adjusting. You know, we, we might be working differently and shopping differently and commuting differently. Uh, certainly we'll be uh, traveling on aeroplanes differently. Um, so, you know, these are all going to be some pretty interesting um, and profound structural changes to the economy. Uh, we also then get on to some, some more difficult debates around just how the economy will look going forward. You know, we, we need productivity enhancing reform. We know that. Uh, will the government be able to take advantage of this crisis and get that through? What will our relationship with China look like? You know, there's obviously a bit of political pressure coming from China for Australia not to join the chorus of economies or the chorus of uh, governments that are asking why. Uh, you know, where did the virus come from? How can we stop this happening again? And then there's this concept of economic sovereignty. And the argument there is, should economies like Australia bring back some of the supply chains to Australia uh, for key industries, you know, medical industries and high-tech manufacturing, the things our economy needs? And should we uh, more broadly diversify our supply chains and, and trading partners? You know, we've, we've been very, very centralised in terms of our trading partners in Asia. Um, do we need to look further afield? You know, we've got a, a free trade agreement with um, the EU uh, that's currently in progress. You know, that's a, that's a market of 500 million people. You know, do we need to go back to some of these traditional markets in order to diversify our trading relationships uh, and, be, and try and make ourselves a little bit more immune to these shocks uh, going forward? So there's a lot of things happening, I guess, in the Australian economy that we need to think about uh, how we will operate uh, in future. And I think it will be very different to how we've operated uh, going into this crisis. Well, the issue is that you've got to, you're going to have entire industries will be transformed massively. And uh, some industries will go out completely. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, some of the industries that are under pressure because of this, uh, you know, tourism, uh, education, we'd like to think they'll bounce back, but uh, they're going to be under pressure for an extended period of time. And are we going to go back to the way that we were, you know, where one in four international students was from China, uh, one in six tourists was from, from China. Um, that, those, those sectors are not necessarily going to bounce back in any, in any rapid way. You know, international travel is going to probably be one of the last things to come back. Uh, in all of this. So, um, you know, there's going to be certain industries that remain under pressure for an extended period of time, and, and they may have to do things differently uh, going forward when we, when we come out of this. Well, that's going to be interesting to watch. And also, I mean, what concerns me is there's going to be a massive increase in fiscal deficits uh, at a time when public debt levels in many countries are already high, if not unsustainable. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, it was interesting. There was comments by uh, uh, the Fed chair, uh, Powell, overnight, saying that, you know, debt and deficits, we can't worry about that right now. Um, we need to use fiscal policy to, to right economies and cushion the blow on economies because we know that monetary policy is sort of at the end of what it can credibly do and effectively do. So we've seen that around the world. I, I would say the one positive that we have in Australia is that our fiscal metrics going into this were relatively good. You know, we weren't, say, the US, where we already had, where they already had a huge uh, deficit 
some European countries already had huge deficits and debt levels. Japan's another one where they're obviously huge debt. You know, Australia going into this, if you believe the government had a broadly balanced fiscal uh, uh, fiscal metrics or, or underlying cash balance, as we'd call it, and we had a relatively low level of net debt, and we even had a, a relatively low level of, of gross debt. Gross public debt going into the crisis in Australia, this is Commonwealth and state government uh, debt as a proportion of GDP, was around 45%. Uh, that will blow out to about 65%. And, you know, we'll have a, a fiscal deficit at the Commonwealth level of around 10%, uh, arguably, or a little bit more, depending on how those fiscal stabilisers work. But these gov governments have had to do this. Uh, they've had no choice. You know, the Reserve Bank really hasn't been able to do a lot this stage, but really the, the onus has been on fiscal policymakers, and we wouldn't argue that they shouldn't have done anything, they, they clearly should have, but Australia, yeah, like I say, has been in a relatively good position, and it will actually be in a relatively good position going out of this, funnily enough, even though we've spent a lot, uh, around 10% of GDP on fiscal support so far, and there's likely more to come in terms of fiscal stimulus as we exit the crisis, you know, our, our uh, debt to GDP, public debt to GDP coming out of this, say mid 60s, that actually compares quite well to the G7 average uh, going into this crisis, which was actually 91% of GDP. So we're still better off than than a lot of countries uh, coming out of this as well. But inevitably, there will be pressure on future governments to sort of right the fiscal ship, as it were, and and bring bring fiscal metrics back to a more sustainable basis. And that will mean, you know, fiscal policy will be contractionary in Australia for a long period of time, uh, at a time where monetary policy is, is, pretty, is pretty stretched, uh, for want of a better phrase. So what I think will happen uh, in this case, where direct fiscal stimulus is limited and direct monetary policy stimulus is limited, is governments are going to need to do more uh, on the reform agenda and productivity enhancing reforms, basically because they will have no choice but to do so. Well, that's lots of things to think about, Alex. And, uh, uh, yes, and uh, it's certainly going to reshape the economy. And uh, thank you very much for your time. And uh, thank you again and stay safe. Thanks a lot, Liam. You too. So what's happening in the news? Well, the Federal Treasurer has outlined what he has dubbed a sobering economic outlook on a day when he'd long hoped to deliver Australia's first budget surplus in more than a decade. Instead, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg delivered in the Parliament an economic update, which experts expect will represent the largest budget deficit in Australian history. Mr Frydenberg said the underlying cash deficit at the end of March was $22.4 billion, almost $10 billion higher than the government forecast in December's mid-year budget update. He said tax receipts were $11.3 billion below December's expectations. The Treasury expects gross domestic product will fall more than 10% in the June quarter, representing the biggest fall on record. The Treasury expects household consumption to be around 16% lower in the June quarter. It is forecasting business investment and dwelling investment will both be down 18%. Non-mining sectors are likely to face bigger falls in business investment. Mr Frydenberg warned that if restrictions were reimposed, it would produce a loss of more than $4 billion per week to the economy. 
If hardline restrictions were reimposed, it would cost the New South Wales economy $1.4 billion, the Victorian economy $1 billion, Queensland $800 million, Western Australia $500 million, South Australia $200 million, Tasmania and the ACT $100 million, and the Northern Territory $40 million. An opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, has warned against a snapback to the problems of pre-coronavirus Australia, calling for a reshaping of the national economy. Albanese delivered a broad-ranging vision statement, pushing high-speed rail, decentralised government services to boost regional areas, affordable social housing, and a revitalised manufacturing sector. And even before coronavirus, wages growth was slowing. The Australian Bureau of Statistics has reported wages growth of just 0.5% in the March quarter. Annual growth is at 2.1%, a drop from the March 2019 result of 2.4%. And the NAB Business Survey found that with non-essential services shut down throughout April, business conditions deteriorated further. This was despite the announcement of JobKeeper on the 30th of March and the sharp decline in new daily COVID-19 cases during the month. Confidence did pick up from its record low, but is still much weaker than during the GFC. The employment index and labour costs fell significantly, signalling a sharp downturn in demand for labour, corresponding with ANZ Job Ads data. Business conditions fell 12 points to minus 34 in April, while confidence increased 20 points to minus 46, still considerably weaker than during the GFC. All components of business conditions, profitability, trading and employment fell further in April, as capacity utilisation contracted by a further 3 percentage points to 72%. And credit and debit card data show Australians are starting to open their wallets, with their food, alcohol and home furnishing spending now higher than this time last year, as COVID-19 restrictions ease. Commonwealth Bank data shows that while overall spending in the week to May the 8th is still down 2% on the same week last year, it has bounced from mid-April, where spending was down 20% on the same week last year. The smaller states and territories recorded growth compared to a year ago. Spending in Queensland increase, indicating its earlier easing of shutdown measures, is working to stimulate the economy. And the easing of lockdown restrictions in some states has pushed up retail spending considerably. During the week ended 9th of May, Total ANZ observed retail spending was 22% higher than the same week in the previous year. Consistent with people getting out and about, online spending has softened from 20% of total ANZ observed spending to 15%. ANZ expects spending to spike each time lockdown restrictions ease, but the longer-term trend of retail spending is likely to be weak, reflecting reduced incomes and financial stability for many households. And the coronavirus shutdown has caused a surge in unfair dismissal claims, with new figures showing 65% more cases than the same time last year. Data from the Fair Work Commission revealed a hike in workload, thanks to more cases about dismissals, stand-downs and JobKeeper disputes. For the latter, top issues were changes to working hours, stand-downs and eligibility for casuals. More than 1 million Australians have reportedly lost their jobs since social distancing measures were installed. And China! has suspended meat imports from four Australian abattoirs, fueling concerns that escalating tensions between the two nations are damaging Australia's most important trading relationships. The suspension will start on May the 12th, according to a statement on a customs website. The four plants make up about 35% of Australian beef exports to China. Australia has stoked tensions with China in recent weeks by calling for an independent probe into the origins of the coronavirus pandemic. Australia is also facing the looming threat of major tariffs on its barley shipments to China. The Australian dollar dropped as much as 0.9% to 64.32 US cents. 
Australian agricultural company, the nation's largest integrated cattle and beef producer, fell as much as 5.6%, the most in six weeks. Elders Limited, which helps sell and buy livestock across Australia, China, Indonesia and Vietnam, dropped as much as 6.9%, the most since March 23rd. While a spokesman for China's foreign ministry said on Tuesday the beef imports were suspended to secure the health and safety of Chinese consumers, he also criticised Australia's pursuit of a probe into the origin of the coronavirus first discovered in China. The spokesman, Zhao Lijian, denied the two issues were connected, telling reporters in Beijing, I don't think you should take them as one or make any erroneous political interpretations. Chinese customs found products exported by certain Australian companies violate the inspection and quarantine requirements jointly decided by the competent authorities from both Australia and China, Zhao added. And the dairy industry has called a snap meeting with the federal government as fears grow of a third trade strike from Beijing in retaliation for Australia's pursuit of a global inquiry into the coronavirus. And there's been a massive 98% plunge in the number of arrivals at airports and maritime terminals in the past two months, as COVID-19 travel restrictions here and abroad have brought international journeys to a virtual halt, according to a senior Department of Home Affairs official. Department of Home Affairs Deputy Secretary Cheryl Ann Moy said there were 1.1 million fewer people than normal passing through the nation's borders between the beginning of March and May the 10th, underlining the scale of the damage caused to industries including accommodation, tourism, education, aviation and agriculture caused by the lockdown of the nation's borders. And Australia's research workforce will be severely impacted by the coronavirus pandemic and the effects are likely to be felt for an extended period. There are warnings 21,000 full-time research jobs are at risk due to the coronavirus. The nation's peak scientists and academics warn it will be worse than the GFC. Universities are ineligible to get the JobKeeper wage subsidy for their workers. That's the conclusion of a Rapid Research Information Forum, or RRIF, paper titled Impact of the Pandemic on Australia's Research Workforce. The paper was sent to the Federal Government's National COVID-19 Coordination Commission, as well as Senior Ministers Karen Andrews, Greg Hunt and Dan Tian last week. The pandemic is expected to disrupt the sector more than the global financial crisis, with the scale of the revenue losses for universities from the COVID-19 pandemic likely to be worse in 2008, the paper warns. It estimates that 21,000 full-time equivalent jobs in the university sector are at risk during the next six months, with 7,000 estimated to be research-related academic positions. The RRIF is made up by Australia's leading scientists, researchers and academic institutions. Research work at tertiary institutions is funded by government, non-government grants, industry and discretionary income allocated by universities. And Cochlear says the deferral of elective surgeries in key markets led to a 60% year-on-year slump in revenues during April. The Cochlear implant supplier says unit sales across developed markets fell 80% in April as surgeries were postponed in the US and Western Europe. The company says surgeries in China recommenced in late February and continued to recover throughout April. Surgeries are now running close to pre-virus run rates despite Beijing remaining closed to elective surgeries. Cochlear Services, which represents around 30% of business as usual revenue, has also been affected, with April sales down around 30%. And can Australia support a third airline? Regional Express Holdings, or Rex, will capitalise on the turmoil from Virgin Australia's collapse and invest $200 million launching Capital City Services to compete with Qantas, Jetstar and Virgin Mark II. In a move that could harm the sale price achieved by Virgin's administrators, the regional airline operator is working on a business plan that includes leasing 10 narrow-bodied jets as well as employing new pilots, cabin crew and ground staff. 
Virgin's administrator, Vaughan Strawbridge, has called for indicative bids for Virgin to be lodged by Friday. Industry sources say the business was worth around $1 billion, depending on the amount of secured and unsecured debt. An online retailer, Kogan.com, reports that active customers grew by 139,000 to 1.948 million over April due to the stay-at-home economy. It also reported gross sales more than doubled for April, with gross profit up more than 150%. And Westpac will reassess the need for thousands of highly paid technology staff to be in its major city offices after seeing productivity increase among its developers and major products delivered successfully by home-based teams during COVID-19 restrictions. The bank's chief information officer, Craig Bright, said it's part of an executive group planning how it will safely return staff to its offices as lockdown measures relax. But he said recent months had shown many tasks previously thought to require in-person group collaboration could be done from home. And bad news for super funds. According to Super Ratings estimates, the median balance option rose 2.7% in April. Given the extent of the falls in February and March, the return since the start of 2020 is minus 8.1%, while the rolling one-year return is minus 2.5%. And CSR has reported 10% fall in profit from continuing operations to $125.3 million, as the building materials supplier warned of uncertain impacts on key markets in the 2021 financial year. And Australia's biggest bank, the Commonwealth Bank, has set aside an additional $1.5 billion for loans that go bad due to the coronavirus crisis. CBA also revealed a 23% fall in cash profit over the latest quarter, as efforts to contain the virus and initiatives to keep the economy moving hit home, falling over the quarter to March 31 to $1.3 billion from $1.7 billion at the same time last year, as conditions deteriorated at the end of the quarter. And customers, Doing more digital banking during COVID-19 say they're highly satisfied with the experience and one in five reckon they'll use branches less or stop visiting them altogether when the crisis ends, a survey by Boston Consulting Group has found. The data could give banks confidence to continue to reduce branch numbers as it suggests customers recognise that service through digital banking channels can be better than the branch experience. The survey also shows customers are becoming more comfortable applying for new products through the bank's websites and mobile apps. The BCG Ribex Pulse survey of retail banking customers around the world found that over the past four weeks, 35% of Australian customers have been using their mobile banking app more often. Of these, 95% have been satisfied with the technology. A quarter of customers are using online banking more often, with a 92% satisfaction, while over the COVID-19 period, 36% of customers reduced the use of branches, even though banks have worked hard to keep them open as essential services. BCG found that of the 30% of Australian bank customers who were not using digital banking before the coronavirus struck, one in six have been converted to becoming first-time digital customers over the past month. And the corporate regulator is carefully scrutinising COVID-19-related disclosures. Australian Securities and Investments Commission Commissioner John Price said he supported efforts to protect companies hit by the coronavirus, but will not tolerate anyone taking advantage of the crisis. A special team has been set up inside ASIC to monitor people using very aggressive advertising and pressure-selling tactics in this difficult time. ASX Head of Compliance Kevin Lewis said the exchange had discovered 50 misleading announcements related to COVID-19, preventing most of them from being released while forcing the others to be amended or retracted. Among them was Advanced Nanotech, whose shares were suspended between March 16th and April 2nd. After the ASX queried claims, it had potentially discovered and patented an oral care product that could inhibit the coronavirus. It returned to the market after retracting all announcement related to the treatment. And the federal court has ordered aged care provider Bupa 
to pay $6 million in penalties and millions more in refunds for residents who paid thousands of dollars a year for services they never received. The ACCC identified 95 extra services from Bupa across 20 aged care homes, some of which were never provided. Some residents paid for golf trips, travel escorts and air conditioning, but never received the service. Bupa began $18.4 million redress scheme in 2018 and has paid out $14.1 million so far. The ACCC pursued Bupa for misleading and false representations to aged care residents for extra services the regulators said were not provided in full, if at all. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Patrick Coughlin, CEO of Creditor Watch, on new payment data suggesting that SMEs were struggling with cash flow issues long before the coronavirus lockdown measures came into play and were unprepared for the current downturn. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment and wages figures and what they mean for the economy. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, talking BizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.